Hello, and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about things that have made the scriptures become real to us because we think there's a power in the scriptures and that we can apply them better when we see how real they are. And we need that power and that application in our lives. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and I'm going to do a series of short casts to cover the book of Judges. So I've done a longer one where I talked with uh, Jeff Chadwick. And then I'm going to do several shorter ones to cover the stories and the major lessons that we should get from the stories and some elements in those that that uh, really become real to me uh, and make the scriptures become real to me. So I think we'll do uh, three and none of them will be very long. So let me um, just start out by uh, talking about uh, just the the what we can learn. So the, the first part of the reading is Judges for Come Follow Me is Judges 2 through 4. And um, the, uh, I just, Judges chapter 2 provides a summary for us, where it talks about how, first of all, that Joshua dies, but that the Israelites go through a cycle. And in this cycle, they serve other gods, and then the Lord humbles them, and then they repent, and then he raises up a judge, and then uh, that judge delivers them. Uh, and we see a very similar thing uh, among the Nephites. In the Nephites, we call it the pride cycle. Uh, in the, among the, the Israelites, we often call it the um, idolatry cycle. But I think they both fit into a, a larger pattern, which I would call the covenant corruption cycle, meaning that as we keep the covenant, we receive blessings. Those blessings are prosperity or deliverance or redemption and all sorts of other things, having a promised land that we're safe in and so on. Uh, but then we start to think that those blessings come because of ourselves instead of God. And so we stop uh, really keeping our covenant. That may take the form of being lifted up in our pride and not taking care of other people and not listening to God. It may be in the form of idolatry and worshiping false gods, whatever form that takes. And we probably have both in our day. Um, it keeps us from keeping the covenant. So then God humbles us so that we'll remember him so that we'll keep the covenant again. And when we do remember him and keep the covenant then he delivers us again, and we keep seeing this cycle going again and again and again. So that's what we have um, in the book of Judges. We also learn here at the beginning that while the Israelites have conquered many places, they haven't conquered all places. They haven't occupied all places. They're, they're uh, moving in and starting to inhabit the land. You have to remember that they've really been, uh, since the days of Abraham, kind of a nomadic people. And while they were in Egypt, they were enslaved, but what, what they had were flocks and uh, that's what they had on their own, and that really leads to a nomadic lifestyle. And so this is kind of new for them to come in and try and be sedentary, and not everyone will be sedentary. Some of them will stay nomadic, and some of them will build houses and so on, but it's new for them to come in and start to occupy um, different houses and, and towns and villages. And uh, they don't get rid of all of the Canaanites the way they were supposed to, and so those Canaanites have that influence on them that God warned them about where they start to partake of the idolatry, but God says he'll use that to refine them. Uh, he uses all sorts of things to refine us. We have a story in chapter three, well, two stories in chapter three, neither of which will I go into in, uh, in detail other than to just uh, kind of remind us that the Lord delivers us through whomever. Uh, it doesn't matter what kind of a person they are how talented they are, how much you would expect them to be uh, a, a leader or not. God just raises up those who are willing to follow him. 
and those people deliver us. We're going to see how that does and doesn't work in the story of Samson. I also want to just point out that the word judge is probably not what we think of when we hear judge. We think of a judicial figure, you know, someone on the Supreme Court or someone who sits in a courtroom. But judge really means um, a leader. Uh, that's what it means. And the uh, the 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 primary meaning of judge is to bring about things that are you're supposed to bring about, make things right. Uh, so that will that can include a military element, and that's what we'll see mostly in the book of Judges. But it can include a judicial element. Uh, its primary meaning in the, among the prophets, the prophetic writings, is it's a, a taking care of people element. But judges are supposed to make things right, and in the book of Judges, that will often mean uh, helping Israel be delivered. I'm going to focus uh, on chapter four, and I would recommend you read chapter five. Chapter four is the prose version of the story of Deborah and Barak, and chapter five is the poetic version. And chapter five is clearly very old Hebrew, almost as old as the Song of the Sea that we've talked about, Exodus 15, which is a very, very old uh, Hebrew song. J uh, Judges five is, is almost that old, and it's, uh, it's certainly a, a song that was preserved uh, the way it was sung, and it's a beautiful version of the story of four uh, th that's in chapter four, but chapter four is a little easier for us to understand because prose stories are often easier to understand than poetic stories, but I'd recommend you do both. In any case, there are a couple of elements of this story that I think are worth highlighting. One is that the judge is Deborah, and we should also be clear that judges are sometimes the judge of a tribe, of a couple of tribes, maybe three, four tribes sometimes, uh, and and rarely of all the 12 tribes. Uh, so Deborah is a judge of at least a few tribes. And uh, up in the what's known as the Jezreel Valley, kind of a, a valley just south of the Sea of Galilee, the probably the largest and most fertile valley in uh, Canaan or the Promised Land. Uh, and it's very strategically important uh, for a number of reasons. We'll talk about that a little bit when we do the Gideon story. But... Um, Deborah is a prophetess, and we've talked about that word before. I, I did that uh, in, when we covered the uh, women of uh, Exodus with Camille Frank Olson. That's one I would recommend you listen to. But in the Old Testament, and I'll, I'm sure I'll say this a whole bunch of other times because it's so important to understand, the word prophet is used not the way we use it. When we say prophet, we mean presiding high priest. Um, but they, the way the, pro, the word prophet is used in most of scripture is someone who is inspired to speak on God's behalf. And it can be, uh, there will be often several prophets at a time and, uh, and prophetesses at a time. There are lots and lots of inspired women who uh, are going to say God's will. And Deborah is one of those. She is a prophetess who speaks God's will and, and becomes a judge and everyone recognizes her inspiration. And, and uh, she's a leader for at least several of the tribes. Now, we've got uh, this uh, collection of people, uh, Canaanites, kind of led by the king in Hatzor. And we know that there were Canaanites led by a king in Hatzor in Joshua's day, and he destroyed that Hatzor and burned it with fire. But people seem to have moved back in there, which isn't surprising. And uh, their king is Yabin, or Jabin, as it's uh, written in the King James Version. And... Um, he has a, a general whose name is Sisera, and he's a really uh, well-known warrior and fighter, and they've been oppressing the Israelites. They have more chariots than the Israelites, and they've just been oppressing them. 
Um, and Deborah the prophetess is judging um, the people in Ephraim, and uh, the the children of Israel come and and uh, are getting inspirational messages and directions from her. And one day she calls for a person named Barak, and Barak uh, she asks him to be the leader, and to, she says God is going to deliver Israel. Uh, you just need to do God's will, and God will deliver Israel. And she wants him to go uh, to Mount Tabor in the Jezreel Valley. And Barak says he'll go if she comes with him. Um, but Deborah tells him that uh, just so that everybody knows, and this will be a theme in the book of Judges, we don't want anyone to get confused and think that, that the deliverance that has, that has come or that is about to come is because you are so powerful and wonderful and strong. You need to know that it's because God is powerful and wonderful and strong. So um, the way that happens in this story, we're going to see other ways it happens in other stories, but the way that happens in this story is that um, women are going to be the key figures. Uh, and I, hopefully this is not offensive to anyone. I think we just need to put ourselves in the uh, days and culture of ancient Israel when so much of uh, life is about battle. Really, they lived in a much more violent time than we do, and uh, people killed people more than we are used to, and uh, cities battled against cities and so on, and uh, women were not known as the warriors. Men were known as the warriors. So if you are going to have a, a battle, first of all, most judges were men, but Deborah was a woman. Secondly, she tells Brock, though you will lead the army, just so that it will be clear that it's God who's literally delivering you, Sisera, the great leader of the Canaanites, will be killed by a woman. Because, and that, that highlights that it's really the Lord who's doing it, because it's not going to be because of this woman's great prowess in battle it's going to be clear that it was for something else. So she makes sure that everybody knows that. Barack says, okay, I'll go to battle if you will come with me. And so Deborah says, all right, let's go. So they go up to Mount Tabor. And um, uh, one day, Deborah, this is in chapter 4, verse 14. Deborah says unto Barak, up for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera, that's the general of the Canaanites, into thine hand. Is not the Lord gone out before thee? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor and 10,000 men after him. So the Canaanites are down at the bottom of the hill. The Israelites are up at the top of the hill. The Israelites come running down the hill and start fighting the, uh, the Israelites. I mean, they start fighting the Canaanites and they are winning, even though Sisera has lots more chariots and this very well-trained fighting host uh, with better technology. The Israelites are putting them to... to to flee, right? They're beating them and they're fleeing and we'll chase them all the way across. Mount Tabor is kind of in the middle of the Jezreel Valley and they'll chase them all the way to the edge of the valley where there's a, a small, it's by Megiddo. That's a small little pass is the only way to escape and get out of the valley on that side of the valley. And uh, there's one way on the east and one way on the west. And that's your only way in and out of the valley, really. It's a large valley, but but it's tightly controlled. So they must be trying to get out, but they're chased all the way to the waters of Megiddo and uh, are slain there. Uh, and so Barak's warriors have this great, great victory. But, and, and uh, to me, part of what makes this real is that you can picture these places and the logistics of the battle. Of course, 
uh, the Canaanites, even though they outnumber the Israelites and have greater chariots and so on, are not going to attack them when they're at the top of a hill. That's that's really hard to take chariots and tack uphill and be successful. Um, and uh, the Israelites have this advantage as they run down the hill, but once they get in the valley, then the uh, the chariots would be an advantage to the Canaanites, but God helps them. And then you have these real logistics that as they're losing, the, the Canaanites are trying to escape the valley and just get away. Um, but they get trapped right at the bottleneck of this pass where you could get out of the valley. Um, but it's also really interesting that what happens is that um, there is a, the, this great leader, Sisera, is fleeing. So he, he's been knocked out of his uh, chariot or something like that, and he's running uh, by foot, and he comes to a tent. Uh, and uh, it's the tent of a guy named Heber, and he's a Kenite, so he's not an Israelite. Um, and uh, he is somewhat allied to uh, Yabin, the king of Hatzor. But for whatever reason, his wife, Yael, um, or Jael, as it's written in the King James Version, but Yael, um, she has come to believe in Jehovah and that uh, that's who they should really follow and trust, if not uh, a Canaanite god. So, but of course, Sisera, the, the Canaanite general, doesn't know this. So he comes to the tent. And uh, he says uh, uh, he needs some help. And uh, Yael says to him, she comes out and she sees him and, and that he's running. And she says, come in here uh, and fear not. And uh, so she comes in and she, she hides him. She gets a mantle or some kind of big uh, garment or something that's, that's large enough for him to hide under. And she, she covers him under there. And then she says, let me get you a little, uh, or he asks for some water. And she gives him some milk. Now, if you can imagine, if someone gives you a nice cup of milk and you've had a hard day and they tell you to lay down in this dark tent and put a big blanket on you, that he's going to fall asleep. And uh, so he says, okay, well, you, you look out in the tent and, and if anyone says, is there anyone in there? Say no. Uh, and so he falls asleep and uh, you're just going to have to pardon me. I am a religious educator and a dad, and so I have to do bad puns. She is going to do the first um, stake temple work because what she does is she takes the, the nail of the tent, they say. So this is the kind of big stake that they put the, the tent down, and she puts it up against the, his temple there uh, as he's asleep, and she pounds the nail or the stake right through his temple and kills him. Uh, she nails it right into the ground, and he dies fast into the ground, and then she goes, and uh, tells Barak, and uh, Barak sees that Sisera is dead, and uh, that uh, as had been prophesied, it's clear that he, uh, it was not the Israelites' great might that did this, right? So they will attribute it to God. Of course, Yael played a part, but I believe God helped her, and as a result, the Israelites are uh, successful, and at least in that area for that time, they will be freed from this oppression, but they will soon fall into oppression again. And we'll look at that uh, as we get to chapter six. And I would just urge you to read chapter five on your own or sing chapter five as a family for family home evening. What better thing could you do? Uh, and I hope that this helps you see uh, both this covenant cycle, I would I'd call it a covenant cycle, except for a covenant cycle would be good. A covenant corruption cycle is what we're looking at where we have um, just people keep 
uh, turning away from God and have to keep being brought back to God. And hopefully we can learn about how that might be happening in our lives and do something about it and not corrupt the covenant, but just keep the covenant and keep recognizing that our blessings come from God and keep following God and letting him prevail in our lives and not anything else. And then we'll just have great blessings and stay at the top of that cycle and not fall down to the bottom.